The early church father, Tertullian, once quipped, What doth Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Now, he was warning to the early church, the the early Christian church, that is, against Greek heresies, but also reminding them of their absolute allegiance to Christian thinking. Okay, this was a philosophical argument that he's making. We must think like Christians. So the title of this sermon is a bit of an ode to Tertullian to question the modern Christian, also to question the modern Jew. What does Jerusalem have to do with Christ? What does Jerusalem have to do with Christ? This is something that we need to answer. Well, in light of the recent war in Israel, it has been requested of me to give a pastoral response to what is happening. Besides the fact that many from this congregation desire to hear what God's Word says about this and what God is calling Christians to believe about Israel, many in our Christian culture, I believe, do too. It's not just us as villagers, it's also the greater churches wondering how should we think about this. And as I peruse Facebook, that great think tank that it is, (laughs) as I look around Facebook posts, I see that many Christians have very strong opinions about the present Middle Eastern conflict in Israel. This is a hotly debated subject, so I'm just going to tread a little bit lightly, try to be humble about this, and and recognize that. But what I found most concerning, uh, as I look through Facebook especially, uh, and I find most concerning, is the blatant disregard for the history of Israel, the early church's beliefs regarding Israel, and most importantly, the teaching of the New Testament on Israel. And while those are all towering testaments uh, that we should give uh, ear to, that we should give attention to, that deserve much, much honor, more pointedly, I find it gravely concerning that little of the fact that Jesus fulfills Israel is being spoken of. This isn't really the way that many people are thinking about it. Said another way, Christians are viewing Israel from a Jewish perspective, from what I can tell, not a Christian perspective. And what I find also shocking is that this is admitted by Christians and they view it as the correct stance, as if the Jewish interpretation was somehow more authoritative than Christ himself and what Christ says about this in the New Testament as he speaks to us. One particular Facebook, and I don't mean to demean anyone who may have posted this in this room, uh, you're still learning about this, I'm still learning about this, so I want to be humble about this, but this is one of the things that I'm reading as I'm looking on Facebook. One particular post kind of opens up and it says, Did you know that Jesus wasn't a Christian? He was a Jew. Some of you are smiling. You've read this before. Did you know that Jesus wasn't a Christian? He was a Jew. Now, when they wrote this, whoever wrote it, they thought that they were being witty when they said this, and they were a little bit. Uh, But what they revealed to me is that they see Israel, they wouldn't say this, but they see Israel from a pharisaical view. They're seeing it like a Pharisee would see it. Jesus wasn't primarily Christ, which means Messiah. He was primarily a Jew, okay? He wasn't Christ, he was a Jew, and this is where they're starting. He's just a Jewish man. Now, this view cannot agree with the Christian and New Testament view of Colossians 3.11 that says, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, right? Christ is the way that we start to look at everything. We don't divvy up things and decide whether or not they are Jewish or not Jewish. This isn't the way that we should think anymore as Christians. So in order to bring clarity to Christ's church this morning, I'm going to preach to you from an unabashed Christian perspective. It shouldn't shock you, but this is the perspective that I'm going to take. And some people actually aren't really agreeing necessarily that you should preach from this way, but that's the way I'm preaching. 
Now, my seminary professor, as I'm going through my seminary classes, he once said uh, that if you can preach your sermon in a Jewish synagogue and not be thrown out by the end of it, you're not preaching a Christian sermon. His point is saying you're preaching morals. You're preaching just basic values. You're preaching moralism. You're not preaching the gospel because the gospel is offensive. Okay? The gospel offends people. Okay? So, so what he was trying to say is that you aren't preaching if you haven't preached Christ and him crucified. This is what Paul says when he goes to the churches. He says, I was determined to know nothing among you, among you except for Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ the power and, God, or the power and wisdom of God, right? So this is the message that I'm trying to bring, is the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jewish thinking, it's, it's going to be offensive. To, to pagan thinking, to Greek thinking, it's going to be folly, it's going to be foolishness. But I'm trying to bring to you the simple gospel of Jesus Christ that tends to step on toes at times, okay? And seeing that all this will be a Christocentric sermon, we must also look at this subject not just from the Old Testament, which is happening a lot right now, but also from the New. We need to look and see what the New Testament says about this. So the New Testament book of Hebrews opens with this. I've already asked you to turn there. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And I'd love to just keep reading. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. We could just keep reading the whole book of Hebrews. Right? This, this passage is extremely powerful, and it continues to speak on and preach to the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is all in all, and how it transforms our worship and, and completely changes everything. This is the book of Hebrews. But I wanted to start in this first and second verse here. It's interesting, the name of this book. Did you notice? The book of Hebrews. Okay, Who were the Hebrews? The, the, the group of people who later came to constitute Israel. Okay, But this book opens by telling us that Jesus is now the prophet. He, he'll, it'll go on to say he's the priest and the king of Israel. The Hebrews. So Jesus is the one that speaks for this group of people now. And what this means is that we listen to the Bible through the word of Christ. Not rabbinic teaching, as the Jewish rabbis would tell you today. Not just Jewish tradition, but actually what Jesus says becomes the authority for us. So we're going to do this this morning. We're going to see, and this is really the main point of the sermon, we're going to see how to think Christianly about Israel. That in itself might be a new subject or a new concept for you, thinking Christianly about something. We as Christians need to think differently than some other people. And in this time, we're, we're going to be answering uh, questions such as these. Who are the children of Abraham, according to the New Testament? What is the early church teaching on what it means to be a Jew? And finally, what does the revelation of Jesus Christ have to do with both Israel then and now? Those are big questions, okay? And I realized about halfway through preparing this that there's just no way that we could answer all three of those in one sermon. So this is going to be the first of I don't know how many sermons, but at least a couple sermons. So if, there's, if it's feeling like I'm missing something today, just hold on. Okay, we're going to keep talking about this. So yeah, I'm just going to try to tackle the first two questions here, and then we'll see how many more sermons that will lead to uh, left. Uh, but before we answer any of these questions this morning, let's ask the Lord's 
help and prayer. I think that we're all going to need it as we start to tread these hot waters. So let's bow our heads and pray real quick. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning, the name that is above every other name, and we bow humbly at his feet. We recognize that Jesus has given us the final word on how to read scripture, on how to think about Israel, on how to think about everything. And we just want to humble ourselves now, realizing that we don't have it all in our minds. We haven't figured out Christianity in every single bit. We're still learning and we're praying today that you would speak through the ministry and the power of your Holy Spirit and be upon us now. I pray that you would transform our minds, that you would renew our minds by the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the things that we can change in the ways that we think and orient our, uh, our lives towards. Lord, help us to walk away from this sermon today knowing that we have heard from Christ and being enlivened and invigorated by Jesus and what he has done for us. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Okay. God blesses those who bless Israel. Have you heard that before? God blesses those who bless Israel. Now, I've heard that a lot before in my life, but every single time I've ever heard this, that God blesses those who bless Israel, it was in reference to the modern-day state of Israel. Okay? The democratic one, which has no king. Okay? It's not a monarchical system like the biblical Israel, and would even be categorically opposed to such a system or such a king. Okay? That's just what Israel is today. Now, already you can probably see that I'm stressing discontinuity between uh, modern Israel and the biblical Israel. Okay, and I'll, I'll talk about this more in a minute, but I'm, I want you to see that in my mind, and I believe Christian teaching in the New Testament, and what Jesus is saying is they aren't the same thing. These are two different things that we often kind of mesh together and get, let's be honest, a little bit sloppy in the way that we're talking about Israel. So the Israel of the Bible was a theocracy, meaning that it was God-ruled, God gave the law, and it was God that actually governed the people in totality. Like They were all about God and God-oriented. Now, the modern Israel, they are a secular nation by choice. They are a democracy, the way that the United States is in many ways. They are a secular nation where actually only one in five people are not Jews. Okay, think about that statistically. One in five people in Israel are not Jews. What this means is that Israel today is really only about 73% Jewish. That's not like the biblical Israel where it was 100%. Okay? And similar, this is similar in many ways to the United States. We, we often talk about it being a Christian nation. Let's be honest, it's not necessarily a Christian nation. Maybe we were founded by Christian people and uh, we've really gone astray from that. But in 2020, uh, 2021, only 63% of Americans actually professed Christianity. So we're just barely halfway Christian. Okay? So, if you can't tell, this discussion is becoming increasingly complex, isn't it? As we start to think about all the governments, all the way that the modern thinking has tied into this, and I just gave you a quote, God blesses those who bless Israel. Okay, that's where this starts to get messy. American Christians often quote this about a nation that they think is synonymous with the biblical Israel, but is really a, let's be honest, it's a post-Holocaust um, revamped hope for the biblical Israel. The Israel that they're talking about was proclaimed in 1948, not that long ago, by David Ben-Gurion, the executive head of the World Zionist Organization. He announced it as a sovereign state. So this was, in many ways, a man-led, uh, a man-centered um, event where they are constituting this, uh, this nation. I know many people would argue and say, no, this was God working it. 
we can get, we can get to that later. So I, I want to at least begin by evaluating this statement. God blesses those who bless Israel. How do we think about that? Because you've probably heard it recently, people saying this kind of thing as it relates to how we should think as Christians with what's going on in the Middle East now. Now, this idea comes from Genesis 12. It does come from the Bible, uh, where this statement uh, uh, is a covenantal, uh, it's a covenantal claim given to Abraham, actually Abram. If you want to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis, Genesis 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And uh, for those of you who are really interested in trying to figure out how to think about this, we're going to look at a lot of Bible passages, and you might not be able to swallow all this in one sermon. This might be a good time for you to grab a little notepad, maybe on the back of your liturgy, and jot down these scriptures so that you can go back, read all of these together, and see what the biblical picture is, that uh, what the Bible says about all of this that we're going to talk about this morning. So Genesis 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 now. Now this is God speaking to Abram. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In verse 3, this is where it pertains to our subject today. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the first thing that I want you to see about this is that this promise wasn't originally given to Jacob, who is later named Israel. For those of you who don't know the Bible history, Jacob was renamed Israel, from whom the people of God would later take their name, and now Israel is named after Jacob. Okay? The Bible, if you, if, you, if you don't know, it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who is renamed Israel. Okay, so that's where they're getting this. It was this uh, promise, this blessing was given to Abraham, who was, or, sorry, it was given to Abram, who was later to be Abraham. He was renamed too. I know this gets confusing. But, but Abraham would father a son from which this line of promise would continue on. Okay, so in at least that sense, this is true. God blesses those who bless Israel. Okay, God blesses those who blesses the line of the promise that comes from Abraham that later is called Israel. Okay, but here's the first problem that we encounter as we start to think of this aside from Christ. Okay, and it's, it's this. Who are the true children of Abraham? Who are the true children of Abraham? Because let's not forget, Abraham's firstborn son was not Isaac, the father of Jacob, later named Israel. Who was it? Sunday school right now. Do you remember who it was? It was Ishmael. Ishmael. Okay, that's a name that no one likes in Christian circles. Ishmael. Oh, no. We start thinking Muslims and so on, and I won't go down that trail. But Ishmael was born first, before Isaac was. And what this immediately tells us is that not everyone, not everyone who is a descendant from Abraham is the rightful heir in the same way that the chosen son is. It's a little different, isn't it? Okay. Now, we're going to jump way forward to the New Testament, to Galatians, and we're going to hang out in Galatians for a little while. Galatians 3, 7 through 10 says this. Galatians 3, 7 through 10, and I'd encourage you to turn here because we're going to look more in depth um, in, in the coming chapters too. It says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So there's the questions answered for us very clearly in the New Testament. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Okay? So this is the New Testament exegesis, the New Testament interpretation of that passage that we just looked at in, Hebrew, or in Genesis. Okay? It even quotes it. In you shall all the nations be blessed, is what Paul says when he's kind of showing the New Testament church how he should think about this. Now, run that passage that we just read in Galatians around the loop when considering Israel today. Okay? Are they those of faith? Do they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the New Testament teaches that only those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And those who rely on works of the law are under a curse, Paul says. In fact, Paul chastises the early church and the early Christians just a couple verses prior to this for falling back into Jewish ways of thinking. He calls them bewitched fools. He's saying, you bewitched fools. Why are you thinking like Jews? Look at just the beginning of chapter 3. This is what Paul says and the, the temperature at which Paul speaks to this issue. issue. Now, Let's keep reading the New Testament teaching on this subject. If you want to turn forward in Galatians to chapter 4, maybe just a page or two. Galatians 4, verse 22 through 33. Galatians 4, 22 through 33. And let's ask again, who are the children of Abraham? Who are the blessed ones that will bless others when they are blessed by them? Okay, God blesses those who bless Israel. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Okay, so Paul, he's going to address this issue of Ishmael and Isaac. That's what he's talking about, the two sons of Abraham. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Ishmael, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Let me just stop there for a second. How many people have told you that if you read Genesis allegorically that you're a liberal and you don't know how to read the Bible? He's quoting and he's talking about Genesis and he gives the New Testament example. How should we read the Bible? He says these things may be interpreted not literally but allegorically. Now I'm not saying none of Genesis is literal. I'm not saying that at all but I'm saying at least here Paul says you need to read this allegorically and think in this kind of typological way. Okay? Okay. That's, that's, that's big for some people. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically, it says. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Let me stop again. To the present Jerusalem. Note again how Paul, um, he's distinguishing here the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. He's saying they're not the same. Okay? He's talking about the present Jerusalem versus the old Jerusalem. Okay, let me keep reading. So she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. He's talking about the church there. Okay, now let's jump down to verse 28. Um, brothers like Isaac, or you brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, talking about Ishmael, uh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is also now. He's talking about Jews persecuting Christians. Okay? But what does the scripture say? Verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Wow. Wow. 
What this emphatically tells us is that this blessing isn't about bloodlines. It's not about who your earthly father is. It's not about citizenship. It's about faith. It's about faith. And particularly, faith in Jesus Christ and all the promises that God has given to us as his people. Now, this same question is called in Romans 4. And that is, who is this blessing for? Who is the blessing of the promise of Israel for? Well, the Jewish assumption was that it was for those who are Jewish by birth and religious affiliation. But Paul smacks down this thinking in light of Christ. He doesn't allow that. Romans 4, 9 through 12 says this. You can turn there in your Bibles. I'll give you just a second to get there if you want to read it with me. But Romans 4, 9 through 12 says this. Is this blessing then only for the uns- or, sorry, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Talking about Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, Gentiles and everyone else. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, catch this, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. Father Abraham, you've heard the song. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Jews don't sing that song very often, just so you know. So the righteousness would be counted to them as well, verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, so the New Testament teaching is that it's not only ethnic Jews who are blessed and receive the promise, but only those who believe in Jesus. This might be radical for some people. It's only those who believe in Jesus who are the continuation of the Jews. And by definition, this excludes the modern Jew. Right? The person who is a Jew now, this excludes them because they do not believe in Jesus. They reject Jesus. Okay? Galatians 3. I'm going to turn back just a little, little bit. Galatians 3, 27 through 29 says this. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. Lots of Bible flipping today. I know, I know. But I really want you guys to get the Bible answer to this. Not just what do we think, what has tradition told us, what, what is culture t- telling us. I want us to see what does the Bible say about how to think about this. And I want you to actually be able to give a scriptural answer for this. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are what? Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So what this tells us is there's not two people of God. This is a misunderstanding in Christianity. A lot of people believe that there's Israel who are the people of God, and then we are plan B Gentiles. We're also kind of the people of God, and there's these two parallel people, chosen people of God. The Bible says, no, we are all one in Christ Jesus, and if we've been baptized, we are all one together. And that's not Jew, it's not Greek, it's not that anymore. That's not the way we should think. We should think like Christians, and are we or are we not in Christ? That's the biblical answer to this question of the people of God. Are we the people of God, or are the Jews the people of God? Some people say both. And the Bible says, "Mm, not really, because if you don't believe in Jesus, then you aren't part of the people of God. You've rejected Jesus. You've rejected the promises. You've rejected the blessing. You've forfeited. You're drawing a curse upon yourself by rejecting the Messiah. 
So Paul's point is that we must stop thinking in Jewish ways. You foolish Galatian, who has bewitched you, he says. Paul's point is that we need to think like Christians. Think through a Christian perspective. And if we're baptized into Christ, it doesn't matter our place of origin. It doesn't matter our race or even our sex. We are all one in Christ Jesus and heirs through Christ. Even as the old Jewish order was coming to a close and the kingdom of God was emerging and things were changing, everyone was kind of confused of what what all is happening. John the Baptist, he alluded to this reality that the offspring of Abraham are not just ethnic Jews. Okay, So we have a gospel account here. Matthew 3, 7 through 10 says this. This is John the Baptist uh, as he's doing ministry around the Jews. But when he saw, that is John the Baptist, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Remember, these are the two great Jewish sects of that day, the Pharisees and Sadducees. When he saw them coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Think about what that means. He's essentially saying, You spawn of Satan. Vipers, snakes, think fall of man, right? He's saying, You're a spawn of Satan. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance... And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, even from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. And even now, the axe is laid to the root. Think about that language. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a strong judgment. Cut down, thrown into the fire. Think about that imagery, what that might imply. What he's saying there. Now, many commentators uh, believe that when John says this, uh, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able from these stones. He he makes a reference to stones. What is that? Well, many people believe that he's actually making reference to nearby God-fearers. These are Gentiles who were trying to follow the way of Judaism. They were trying to follow the Jewish way, uh, and they have converted to the God of Abraham. And what many commentators believe is what John is saying is that God is able from even these stone-hearted people around us, even these Gentiles around here, God is able to raise up children for Abraham by faith. That is what he's speaking to here. So I believe we've now answered the question of who are the true children of Abraham according to the New Testament. It is those who believe in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Now, our next question, I'm not going to spend as much time on it because it's kind of the same answer, but what is a Jew according to the early church? What is a Jew? And what you're going to find is that the answer to these three questions regarding the children of Abraham, Jews, and Israel are all answered the same way in the New Testament. Romans 2 shapes for us the early church's thinking as it relates to the Jew. Okay? Romans 2, 28-29 says this. If you're an underliner, I want you to underline a couple words in a second. It says, for no one, for no one, I want you to think about how comprehensive that is, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now, you've probably heard the opposite of that before. You've probably heard the circumcision. That was the outward way. That was the Old Testament way. And Jews were just outward, and they did everything outward. That's not what the Bible says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Verse 29. But a Jew, here's the definition, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Okay, so there's a contrast there. 
by the Spirit, not by the letter. So it's not that being a Jew is somehow also a matter of the heart. It's that no one, think about cutting off language, no one is a Jew unless it is so that their heart is united to Christ by faith. That is what a Jew is. No one is unless you are continuing on all the promises of the Old Testament. Now, in Revelation, I know we've talked about a lot of New Testament books, but let's go all the way to the end. We've talked about Genesis, we've talked about the Gospels, we've talked about some of the epistles. Let's go to Revelation. Okay? In Revelation, when Jesus is addressing the seven churches, he calls out Jews who are only Jews outwardly and reject the Messiah. And this is what he says about them. Revelation 2.9, when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, Christians, he says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. What was the name of the place of worship for the Jews? It was the synagogue. He says that they are a synagogue of Satan. Why are they a synagogue of Satan? Because they reject the Messiah. Now, it sounds a lot like John the Baptist's brood of vipers, doesn't it? You brood of vipers, you spawn of Satan. What are you doing? Okay, Here again, Revelation 3, 9, where he's speaking to the seven churches. This is Jesus, what Jesus is saying to his church. Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie... Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. It's hard to even read this and remain humble. I'm just going to be honest. It's hard. This is Jesus' word to the Jews, and it's hard. It's judgmental. It's striking. And I, I want us to take seriously what he is saying here. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You, he's speaking to the church. He's talking about unbelieving Jews bowing, how, bowing down somehow to Gentile Christians. And I'm not calling for that necessarily this morning. I just want you to see the, the brevity of this discussion that we're having. This is deep. This is strong language. So it, it's not just that you may be considered a Jew if you're not ethnically so. The early church's understanding was that unless you received Jesus... The Messiah, Jesus who is the Messiah, not just a Jew, but unless you received Jesus who is the fulfillment, the Messiah, you're a false Jew. You're not continuing on. You've broken somewhere. You've cut yourself off. To be a true Jew, you must believe all the law and the prophets and all that they said, all that they foretold, right? Otherwise, you're breaking the covenantal promises by not receiving them by faith. Because that's if you're receiving Jesus, you're receiving all that the law and prophets have told. Okay? And the law and the prophets foretold that a Messiah would come and fulfill all that is written. And he came and even said that he did so. He said, I'm not coming to abolish the law, guys. I'm coming to fulfill it. And they crucified him. They said, no, 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 no. That doesn't fit with our interpretation. The, the rabbis have said, and they killed him. They, they killed Jesus Christ. All of the law and prophets are fulfilled in Jesus and if you reject that, you reject Abraham's promise. You reject Jewish teaching. You're not truly in line with Israel. You have broken. You cut yourself off. And if you will not believe that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, the, the scripture says that you've invoked a curse on yourself. You've, you've cut yourself off from the covenantal vine. Because who is the vine? Christ. 
Jesus is divine, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. An axe is laid to your root in your unbelief, and you will be thrown into the fire, it says, if you do not believe. Now, we've only answered two of these three questions, and I'm, I'm sure that there's probably more, and I, I'm going to speak to them. But who are the children of Abraham, and what is a Jew? Both of these questions are the same answered, and it will be the same with all the rest coming forward. It is those who receive Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ literally means the Messiah, the one, the one given to Israel. It is those who receive him by faith. Now, there's much more to say, and we are going to keep talking. So, again, if you have questions, you're like, well, there's this big hole here, Mason. You haven't spoken to this. I want to speak to that, too. I just can't do it all in one, in one sermon. But I want us to end today reflecting on the posture of Jesus as he related to the present Jerusalem. And I use that language because it's biblical language. As he reflected on the, 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 the present Jerusalem in his day, okay? how did Jesus think about Israel when Jesus was encountering Israel, right? When, when Jesus read Genesis 12, as we have just done earlier, and thought about the Abrahamic covenant that included, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you, do you think that Jesus was tiptoeing around the Jews so as to not dishonor them and so that he wouldn't invoke a curse? That's not the posture that Jesus really... Carried out. I know a lot of people, when we start talking about Israel, like, well, if, you, if you're saying something against the Jews, then you might get in trouble. You might, you might get this curse. You might, you might not be blessed if you say something against the Jews. But did Jesus carry that same kind of thought as he was encountering the Jews of his day? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Okay? So let me ask him really hard questions. And I want you to answer them in your heart. I want you to think Christianly about them. Do you think that Jesus blessed Israel on the basis of ethnic descent. Just because you're from Israel, did Jesus say, well, you're, you're the people of God. You came from Israel. You came from covenant, or the covenantal people. Do you think that he always sided with the Jews in their interpretation of biblical prophecy? This is a big one. Why do we sway towards Jewish ways of interpreting the Bible when Jesus almost all through his ministry say, nope, 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 nope. You guys are missing it. You're reading the Bible wrong. So do you think that he always sided with the Jews and their interpretation of biblical prophecy? How is John's accusation of the Israelite Pharisees and Sadducees in keeping with, bless those who bless Israel? Was John somehow breaking this principle? Bless those who bless Israel when he said, you brood of vipers? Okay, and here's the big one. Did Jesus tell the early church to stand with Israel no matter what? Did Jesus tell the early Christians to stand with Israel no matter what? Now, this question in particular is pressing because in 70 AD, Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans. Like the, the people of God, that was their city, that was their, their center. Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans, the great enemy of the Jews. It was a perfect opportunity to set an early church precedent on how should Christians respond to Israel being attacked. What, what should the Christians do when Israel is being attacked, when Jerusalem is being attacked? And in this final attack that had been sizzling for years, the Romans, what they did is they came in, they walled up the, the Jewish inhabitants, because there was a wall around Jerusalem. They walled them up, didn't let them out, starved many of them to death, burned the city to a ground, and perhaps most importantly to remember, they destroyed the temple, which has never been rebuilt. This is what happened in 70 AD to the so-called people of God. Now, you should be asking, what were the Christians doing? Where were they at? What were they doing in this event? Did they rush in to bless Israel so that they too might be blessed? Actually, the history shows, Josephus, a Jewish historian, shows that they actually distanced themselves 
from the Jews. They show that they're not exactly what they're doing. They're doing something different. The, the, the Christians weren't thinking like Jews. They weren't partnering with some of the things that the Jews were doing. In fact, it appears that in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew 24 and some of the other Gospel passages, they were warned about the abomination of desolation, standing in the temple by Jesus himself. Jesus said, this guy is going to come. He's going to stand in the temple. And, and they took this event, that happened in 70 AD, they took this event uh, to be that because many of the Christians uh, in Judea fled to the mountains before the Jews even walled up Jerusalem. So the Christians actually got off the hook for the most part in that event and left the Jews in Jerusalem to the Romans. Now, my goal this morning is not to convince you of my, my view of the last days, although I'd love to speak more about that. But, but I just want you to start thinking about this as we bring up this cataclysmic moment in Jewish history. Right? Think about this. There is no temple in Jerusalem. There hasn't been since 70 AD. There's not a sacrificial temple, or there's not a sacrificial system. They can't practice as Jews. There is no high priest anymore. All of this has been broken. And now, in 1948, they've tried to revamp, even though there's this huge, huge gap of time in between. They really can't reconstitute, because how do you continue on the high priest with the Levites? They don't even know who the Levites are, necessarily. We'll get to that more, but, but I bring this up, this cataclysmic moment in Jewish history, uh, to draw your eyes to the first time that the Christians would have had the opportunity to exercise their faith if it was indeed in the nation of Israel. What did they do? Well, what history shows, though, was that their faith was in Jesus Christ and his word, what he said. They obeyed. They actually practiced what Jesus said and the warnings. They took them seriously about what Jesus said about the abomination of desolation. And interestingly enough, that Jesus' word and Jesus himself led them to distance themselves from the judgment of God upon Israel. Let us not forget that it was Jesus himself who prophesied the destruction of the temple. Jesus is the one that said this is going to happen. Jesus called it, and he called it in the context of Matthew 24. Okay, this passage that talks about this event. So how many days was it that it was going to take to rebuild it? Three. Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. What was Jesus talking about? He's talking about the resurrection. Jesus has opened up a new and living way. This is what all of Hebrews is about. This is what uh, worshiping in spirit and truth about. Jesus says, there's going to be a day coming, guys. John 4, what we opened with our call of worship. There's going to be a day, guys, where it's not all about Jerusalem. It's not at all about the center of this worship where the temple's here. I am the temple, is what Jesus is saying. I am the high priest. I am the sacrifice. I am all of it. Why are you thinking in Jewish ways? Why are you going back to thinking like the Jews? Now, I'll end by saying this. We're not finished talking about Israel. There's still more to say. Like Job, Israel has a hope, but it's kind of like a cut-down tree. Okay? There's hope for things to spring forward. But, uh, but as for all the unfaithful branches that reject the Messiah, uh, that reject Jesus, here's, here's my heart. It's the same as Paul's. My heart's desire is that they might be saved. That's what Paul says. Why does he say that? Because they're not being saved right now. My, my heart's desire, Paul says in Romans 9, is that they might be saved, that they might believe in the Messiah, that they might trust in Jesus. So let us close on this humbling note, realizing that we as Gentiles, we've been grafted in to something very amazing. And that is the covenantal vine of Jesus. What he's doing in his people, pouring his grace out upon us. We might not bless Israel in the rejection of Christ. We can't do that. We can't bless Israel as they say Jesus is not the Messiah. 
We might not stand with Israel and whatever happens to them because they might be making wrong stands, not thinking like Christ. But guess what we should do? We should pray for them. We should pray for Israel just like we pray for anyone. Just like we would pray for the Palestinian. Just like we would pray for the the Scythian, the, 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 the Gentile, whoever it is. We should pray for all men. Why? Because Jesus desires that all men might be saved. That's what God's word says. This is the way that we orient ourselves towards to what is happening. Pray for them. Pray for repentance. Pray for belief. Pray for humility in our own hearts. This is the way that we should start to think about Israel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you who is so gracious, so kind to us. We don't deserve to even be standing here today. We don't deserve to be able to say that we are a holy nation, a holy priesthood, a people of your own possession, but that's what you say of us. We recognize that that's all of grace. And Lord, we pray for humility. We pray that you would keep us from pride, not thinking that uh, we are better than Jews. Lord, we know that we are all saved by your grace, and no one in this room would be saved if it were apart from that. That is our only hope in Jesus Christ. It's not by works that any man saved. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We cling to that today, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us all the more. Stir up our hearts that we might pray for Israel, that we might pray for those who call themselves Jews but yet reject you. I pray that they would see the light of Christ in light of the Old Testament, that they would see that you fulfill it all, that we've been waiting for you, that they have been waiting for you, and that you fulfill all that their hearts long for. Speak to them, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would open their eyes even through this event that's going on to them. We pray for peace in Israel. We pray for peace in Palestine. We pray for peace all over the world because that is what your reign is promised to bring, Jesus, is that you will make the lion to lay down with the lamb and that you will bring peace among the nations and that all nations will come to you and call you blessed and that you will bless the nations, the Gentiles. We thank you that we're a part of that, Lord. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper now, it's always expedient that we connect the word to sacrament. Okay? That is, how does God's word preach to us this morning, reach more than just our ears, but actually sink down deep into the depths uh, of our being in a sacramental and tangible way? We're able to say, this all is one story. This is the story of the gospel to us, enacted and worshipped out. Uh, said another way, how does the body and blood of Christ given for us, amen his word, preached to us. Okay? How is this what we're doing?